All right, our Old Testament lesson today is from Exodus chapter 20. And you should know when that chapter is called out, that is the chapter that contains the Ten Commandments. I think it's good for us every so often to hear the Ten Commandments, to realize that there is a a moral code given to us by God Almighty. So Exodus chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 4, 7 through 9, and then 12 through 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Then we drop down to verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Then we drop down to verse number 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is in your neighbor's. How many can say you have not coveted your neighbor's ox this week? God bless you. Verse 18, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Amen. And I invite you again to stand with me, and we once again look at these two last verses from 1 John chapter 3. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God bless you. You may be seated. Join our minds and hearts together today in our collect. Almighty and everlasting God, 
you are always more ready to hear than we to pray. And to give more than we either desire or deserve. Pour upon us the abundance of your mercy, forgiving us those things of which our conscience is afraid, and giving us those good things for which we are not worthy to ask, except through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. All right, so I've asked the question that maybe most people would run past the last phrase of the last verse of 1 John chapter 3 and not take any notice at all. I've asked the question, how is it? We've called this little pause here, this interlude that we have between the end of chapter 3 before we get into chapter 4 asking this question, we're kind of camped out around the fire and we're asking the question, how is it that God's spirit comes to us and takes up residence within us? It's a stunning statement. It's a stunning statement. And it is such a commonplace notion among Christians to think that well, oh yeah, you're a Christian, so the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Do we, we, we don't, do we really understand what we're saying? That there is another who has taken up residence in me and is very much alive and occupies some kind of ethereal space in my life. It's hard to explain to somebody else. Uh, we talk about the Holy uh, I heard the Holy Spirit speak to me, or I heard God say this. All right, this is common uh, language among the tribe of Christians, but to other people, it must sound strange. And here's the, here's the kind of wonderful thing about it is that it doesn't sound completely strange to other people. They have some inner sense, some sixth sense, some acquaintance with what we are speaking of, this idea that another could take up residence within our human bodies, within our human lives. So we've, we've borrowed this phrase, the surging life of the spirit, which I think is a phrase that uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, uses, the surging life of the spirit. He has a chapter entitled, the mighty process of the Holy Spirit. How is it that the Holy Spirit begins to deal with a person and eventually they, they end up uh, married, cohabiting, living in uh, the same residence? That's John's favorite word, abide. Look at it again, this last verse, verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments, abides. He's told us what his commandment is, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. Sounds simple enough, doesn't it? Whoever keeps his commandments, abides in God, and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us. We know that God in Christ abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. 
So in the last few weeks, we've tried to lay out this, um, this subject because this is a, a subject of much um, debate and uh, subsequent controversy uh, in the church. Uh, how to answer this question, how, how does God's Holy Spirit come and take residence uh, within us? And the first uh, person that we called to the table to explain what has been, generally speaking, the common Christian uh, stance on this subject, we called Frederick Dale Bruner to the table. Now, there's, if you've listened to me for any length of time at all, you know that there's hardly a sermon that goes by that I don't quote Frederick Dale Bruner. His commentaries, a two-volume commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, his massive tome on the Gospel of John. But one of the first books that he wrote was parsing out his position on the Holy Spirit. And as I said, he, he observed the, the great Pentecostal revival in the Philippines, either as a, a Methodist missionary or a Lutheran missionary. He saw the benefits, he saw the excesses. And so that book was, and it hit the evangelical world as the volume that you had to contend with if you were going to uh, nail down what it was exactly that you believed about the surging life of the Spirit. He takes the position that 1 Corinthians 12, and if you turn over there, we're just going to review this quickly this morning, that 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and through, through 13 are kind of a controlling set of scriptures. They kind of stand at the gate. Before you enter the arena to discuss how is it that the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life, you have to familiarize yourself with these two verses. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So Bruner says this has been the traditional stance of the church down through the ages on how we receive the Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit at baptism. Now, this traditional view has usually been put forth by people who are cessationists. And that means that, and this is kind of unfamiliar territory to us, cessationists believe that the miraculous acts of the apostles, the healing, uh, the resurrections from the dead, that only the uh, apostles of the Lamb in the book of Acts, only those men were gifted with those uh, miracles of signs and wonders, and they were gifted with those miracles of signs and wonders to establish the church of Jesus Christ on the face of the earth. And that when the last apostle died, those gifts 
died out with them. They have a different paradigm. They have a different perspective, a way of looking at this. So they don't believe that signs and wonders are, this is the traditional approach again, that signs and wonders are to be expected in today's church age. Now, that's the traditional view. So the traditional view was, this, yes, in obedience to Christ, you must be born of water and of the Spirit. And as we see it practiced in the book of Acts, wherever the apostles went, they baptized people in the name of the Lord, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Christ. Uh, and then those people received the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it was accompanied with a miraculous sign, like a rushing mighty wind, uh, the house being shaken, people speaking in tongues. But those occurrences, in other words, the book of Acts is descriptive. It is not prescriptive. It's saying this is what happened but it is not saying that this is what needs to happen now. Yeah, I told you it was a little foreign and strange to us because Pentecostals come to church and the preacher gets up and say, God's here uh, today and anything can happen. Where Jesus is, you can receive the baptism. You can be healed. So this, this is a little bit strange to us who have, to some degree, some acquaintance with a Pentecostalism or the charismatic movement. But, but the traditional stance was, okay, in obedience to Christ, command to be born of water and the Spirit, and as the apostles practice it, when you're baptized, either as an infant or as an adult, then as you're coming up out of the water or as you, after you've been sprinkled, you receive the Holy Spirit. So that's been the traditional stance, and it's based on this verse. What makes a Christian a Christian is that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence within them. Look at it again. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So there are not different measurements for the Holy Spirit in this view, like there's some people over here that got a little bit of the Spirit, and it's obvious they didn't get enough because look at the way they live, look how they talk, look how a million and one other things. That was our observation. And then there are people over here who are, they got, they got it. They're really filled with the Holy Spirit. Thereby denying something essential in these two verses, Brunner says, that this is what brings together assembles the diverse nature. Here we are, individual people, but we're all one because we have been baptized with one spirit. So Paul's emphasis here in a divided church at Corinth is to emphasize, look, you, some of you have great gifts, great charisms, but your emphasis on what God is doing with you in your life is, is dividing the body of Christ. Everybody who believes in the name of Jesus Christ and 
practices this command to love one another has been given the Holy Spirit of God, John says. All right, then to the table comes the venerable Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, yes, this is what, uh, this is what has been the teaching of the church uh, down through the centuries. But he says, he died, I think, sometime in maybe 68. He was just beginning to observe the burgeoning uh, charismatic movement. Uh, 1967, at Notre Dame, um, there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that was seen as kind of the seminal date for the charismatic movement in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was observing this, and he says, um... I don't know, I think we've missed something here. And the first verse that he goes to is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, what we've read. He said, this has been the traditional model. We just practice water baptism, and we believe that after a person has been water baptized, then they receive the Holy Spirit. This is what, we, we have the example of Christ, right? He came up out of the water and the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove and the Father spoke and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So this is the pattern. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, uh, you know what? I, I think we missed something there. So for example, in his book, Joy and Unspeakable, which was, published posthumously after he died, but the subtitle is Joy Unspeakable, The Baptism of the Holy Spirit. He would direct us to a verse from the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. Look at this with me, if you would please. This is one long sentence that begins in verse three. There's no punctuation, it's just like a one continuous exhale from the Apostle Paul. But we'll interrupt his breath and read in verse 13, in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Jones taught, well, it looks as though in this surging life of the Spirit, the mighty process of the Spirit, we know that the Holy Spirit is involved from day one. But it looks as though that a person believes and then there comes this subsequent activity where a person is, look at the text again, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Years ago, better than 30 years ago, uh, I asked L.H. Hardwick, I said, well, Brother Hardwick, this is, uh, this is how long this controversy is continuing. I said, what, what's your position on this? Does, like when a person believes they get a little bit, they get regenerated, they get a little bit of the Holy Spirit, 
And then subsequently, there is this other thing called, quote unquote, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they get, and he immediately went to this verse. I think he immediately went to this verse because he had read D. Martin Lloyd-Jones too, as every proper preacher should. That was sermon number two. I've gone to meddling there. But he said, well, now, now, Brother Allen, I do believe. You know, the Southern way is never to come out and say what you actually believe. It's like you got to dance around it for a while. That, the dancing is more important than, than the truth. I do believe that Paul makes room for the doctrine of subsequence or second blessing because when he speaks of being sealed by the Holy, there's a little bit of Catherine Kuhlman going on there. He speaks of being sealed by the Holy Spirit. So I believe that the, the baptism, when a person is baptized in the Holy Spirit and they speak in tongues, although I'm not sure that that's the only sign that a person has been baptized in the Holy Spirit. See, so he's, he was kind of treading on charismatic ground there. He said, but I, I do believe that there, but that doesn't mean, see, now we, we got to dance the other way. We got to do do the other way. But that doesn't mean that our good Baptist friends are not saved. And I'm like, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying to myself, so you haven't figured it out either. <laughs> Remember, don't be afraid to answer the question because as the rabbi told the little boy, don't be afraid to answer the question I've asked you because the truth of the matter is you can't be wrong because nobody knows the answer to this question. It may be that nobody knows the answer to this question. And it may be that we want to retreat to that spot and say, well, that's interesting. But the point I hope to make at, at the end this morning, hopefully I'll make the point enough so that we'll move on into verse one of chapter four. And I hear a mighty amen, the roar of the crowd. So here it is. Uh, there's Frederick Dale Bruner, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, two men I've never met, two men that I highly respect, but to some degree, um, they don't agree about this subject. Now listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, you cannot read the New Testament accounts of the people to whom the Spirit came. These people upon whom he fell. Remember that? Acts chapter 10. While Peter spake, Acts chapter 10, verse 43 and 44. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all them who heard the word. We have experienced this, haven't we? You may experience it when we're, we may experience it when we're gathered together. You may experience it in your own individual life where God's palpable, discernible presence is in some way a, a, a great, how, how do we explain it? He's some way, we know that God is omnipresent so that he's present everywhere. But there are times when we discern God's immediate uh, palpable presence. 
How many have experienced that? You say, whew, I don't know where that came from. I'll take some more. And we read this in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit moves on people. They say strange things like, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. That's a strange phrase, isn't it? It seemed good to us so that it's not just enough for it to seem good to us. The apostles are saying, it seemed too good to us, but it also seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit whom John says, God has given us. It's amazing, really. It's amazing. So John says, you, you can't read the New Testament accounts of these people, these people upon whom he fell, or who received as the Galatian Christians, and all those others had done, without realizing, here's his point, think of him, he's sitting down here at the table with Frederick Dale Bruner, and he's got his finger in Bruner's face, and he's got that, that British accent going, Dr. Bruner, you cannot, look, look, you cannot, without realizing that, that the result was that their whole spirit was kindled. The Lord Jesus became real to them in a way that he'd never been before, and that is the purpose of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence within us to replicate the person of Christ. In the same way that the apostles were in the presence of Jesus, the incarnate Jesus, so you and I, we have received the Holy Spirit. We sense and discern and enjoy the same presence of Jesus through the indwelling Holy Spirit. So he goes on to say, the Lord Jesus Christ manifested himself to them spiritually and the result was a great love for Christ shed abroad in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. We looked, that's where we ended last week, Romans chapter five, verses one through five. We noted there that that's the first time, verse five of chapter five, that Paul mentions the Holy Spirit being shed abroad in our hearts, the love of God being shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So there, we saw last week, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that we need to learn. Romans chapter one, two, three, and four, before we even talk about the Holy Spirit. Now, I introduced a, a third character who comes to the table. His name is D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson is a, if I, my memory serves me correctly, he's, I don't think he would argue with this descriptor. He's a Canadian evangelical. Uh, one of the desiring conferences that John Piper holds in uh, Minneapolis, he was one of the speakers. Uh, that year I was there with uh, Bernie Gillespie. I had my notebook out and about 15 minutes into his presentation, I was lost and stopped taking notes because it's like it doesn't, anything that I'm writing down here doesn't make sense to me. He's well-respected. Well he wrote a book in 1987 entitled Showing the Spirit, a Theological Exposition of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Now, he re represents a third position where he is trying to, 
he, he's trying to referee. Here's the traditional no tongue speech, no miracles, get baptized, and we assume you receive the Holy Spirit. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying, you know what, I, I, I believe that, but I think there's something to be said uh, about this second blessing theology. Now listen to what he says. The question of second blessing theology itself is more difficult for ex- it extends beyond the purpose of tongues and even beyond the holiness tradition. This, this is the truth. Pentecostals, you know that a person is a Pentecostal if they believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is signified by or evidenced by speaking with other tongues as the Spirit of God gives the utterance. If you hear them tack on those words, which it's a biblical phrase from Acts chapter two, for they heard them speak with other tongues as the Spirit of God gave them utterance. That's, that's the description from the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two. So they believe that this is the initial sign. It's called the initial evidence doctrine. You don't have the, quote unquote, the baptism of the Holy Spirit unless you've spoken in tongues. The emphasis became then in Pentecostal circles, kind of a drift away from this joy unspeakable aspect of being baptized in the Holy Spirit to uh, you, you got to speak in tongues. And then one of Pentecostals took that a step further and said, you're not saved at all. You didn't get it. You were not regenerated. You didn't get any of the spirit of God at all until you do speak in tongues and receive, quote unquote, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So when he says it extends beyond the purpose of tongues and even beyond the holiness tradition, charismatics came along and said, well, We believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but we don't believe that speaking in tongues is the exclusive sign. So someone could have an anointed testimony and a charismatic person wouldn't go to that person and say, have you received the baptism? Have you spoken in tongues? That anointed testimony would be enough evidence for them to say, well, obviously this person is is baptized in the Holy Spirit. They've been moved upon. The Holy Spirit has fallen upon them. So we we fell in the rut of kind of manufacturing tongue speech. Oh no 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 that's that's not a that's stammering lips, but that's not speaking tongues because speaking tongues you have to it has to be fluent. In Ben Pemberton's church, no one received the baptism of the Holy Spirit evidenced by speaking with other tongues until Ben Pemberton said they did. Yeah. So you could be speaking in tongues for an hour and and there were people in his congregation who told me this and you, the rest of the church did not believe that you had received the baptism until Brother Ben Pemberton said that's the real thing. And the reason was because there was so much craziness in the early days of Pentecostalism, which is what we'll get into chapter one of verse four. Don't believe every spirit, try the spirits. So they set this as a safeguard 
to keep the crazy spirits out when the prophet said you had received the Holy Spirit. Guess what? You had received the Holy Spirit. Of course, all of this tends to be somewhat extra biblical in nature. Although we do have the apostles coming down from Jerusalem, as yet the Holy Spirit had not fallen on any of them, right? Is this Acts chapter eight? Then the apostles laid their hands on them. It was as though God was saying, look, you need some sense of affirmation uh, from the headquarters church in Jerusalem so that the people will know and understand that this is the same spirit that fell on us in Acts chapter two is the same spirit, Holy Spirit that is falling on these people. So because then tongue speech became so important, it became an idol actually. So then you would have people praying with the person who was quote unquote seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit and they would say, now don't speak in English. Uh, say this, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Now, don't think in English. Don't speak in English. Just start to speak anything that comes to your mind. To be charitable, let's say that their intentions are pure, but it seems as though it's a, it's a fur piece down the road from what we see in the book of Acts where there is, there is a sudden descent of the Holy Spirit shaking the house, setting tongues of fire, causing people to speak and act in uh, ways that we would say, well, this must, this must be the Holy Spirit of God. So I say all that to say, when Carson says that it extends beyond the purpose of tongues and even beyond the holiness tradition. So it began to blossom out. The Pentecostals could not constrain the baptism of the Holy Spirit with their initial evidence doctrine. And even there's much discussion in the assemblies of God today as to whether they should even subscribe to the initial evidence doctrine anymore. The traditionalists are saying, no, this is, this is what makes us distinctive as a denomination in the world today. And the progressives are saying, but its biblical foundation is faulty. Now listen to what Carson says. The three of them are at the table. There's Bruner, there's D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, there's Carson. He says, one stream of Reformed thought has also embraced it, second blessing theology, perhaps best known to the modern world through the writings of who? Hmm. He argues, for instance, as we've already seen, that the sealing of the Spirit in Ephesians 1.13 is a distinct post-conversion experience of the Spirit and in his posthumously published series of sermons entitled Joy Unspeakable, in fact, Lloyd-Jones was known for his sermon series going through passages of scripture, books, uh, passages of scripture, expositional preaching. When he died, he was making a journey through the book of Acts. I have the three volumes that takes us up to about Acts chapter six, but when he died, his intention was to go all the way through the book of Acts. Who knows what conclusions he might have drawn if he had lived longer and kept preaching and teaching. But they did publish this book, Joy Unspeakable. He says, the doctor seeks to establish the same general point in a variety of ways. Now listen to Carson again. I'm persuaded that Lloyd-Jones and many others 
both within and without the charismatic movement. Now, charismatic movement, the charismatics are kind of the unruly sons and daughters of Pentecostals. Listen to what he says. I'm persuaded that Lloyd-Jones and many others, both within and without the charismatic movement, have put their fingers on something extremely important, even if they have not always developed a point in accord with a firm exegesis of the text. We may sense their point when we remember that many non-charismatics, these are people who, well, in the 60s, an Episcopal church in the Northwest, Life Magazine covered it with pictures. They showed a very well-dressed, and we assume a wealthy woman, uh, dress in high heels, and she had a fur coat, a stole or a shawl wrapped around. She was kneeling at an altar in a storefront church. And in the Episcopal church, Episcopalians began to speak in tongues. And Lord knows if you're an Episcopalian, that is one thing you don't want to be caught dead doing. Speaking in tongues is for Pentecostals, those lowbrow, blue-collar, less educated people that live on the other side of the tracks. They have horrible lives, and so let them have their fun on Sunday nights. But don't be importing that into high church Episcopalianism. (laughs) And then it broke out. It broke out. Listen. Listen to Carson again. We may sense that their point when we remember that many non-charismatics reacting against the excesses of second blessing theology have so resolutely set themselves to be open only to the one endowment connected with their conversion. Here it is. Here's the point that no further pursuit of the Lord or of profound spiritual experience is thought wise or necessary. Can we talk? uh, Can we just be honest this morning? What Lloyd-Jones sensed And what Carson is in some way affirming is that there are many Christians who are nominal. They are just Christians by name only. We would, in this church, we would say, well, if they name, this is John's commandment, right? We just read it in the first verse from the second to the last verse in chapter 3. Here's how you know Christians, that they believe in the name of Jesus Christ and that they love one another. So we would affirm those people and we would say, you are citizens in the kingdom. I don't have to make you speak in tongues. I don't have to make you feel less than because you you just got a little bit of the spirit, but I got a whole lot. I got it. I got a whole lot of the spirit, you are, by virtue of your confession, you are a member of the body of Christ. But a lot of nominal Christians live a a life that is lacking in the felt presence of the Lord. 
by their own testimony, by their own testimony, they will say, until I received, quote unquote, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I now sense a greater closeness of Christ in my life. So you say, well, what's our position? Our position (laughs) is neither either or, but our position is both and. It may be, here we are, it may be that nobody knows the answer to this question. But certainly, we don't want to be the people who quench or grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Dan Scott told me years ago, this was just after he assumed being the senior pastor at Christ Church, there was this man of color, I think he was an immigrant, he couldn't speak English very well, who came into their, the congregation at Christ Church. And of course, Christ Church is a large two to 3,000 member church, well-established. It's called Christ Church, but then its full name then was Christ Church Pentecostal. Its background was in one as Pentecostalism. Um, but they had gone on and, and engaged with the charismatic movement and probably would even today be described as, to some degree, a charismatic church. So this man came into the congregation. He asked to speak. He said he had a message from God. In a lot of churches, the pastor would say, "Uh uh-uh. You got a message from God, you tell me. And then I'll tell you whether you really got a message from God or not. I'm not going to let you up and carry on and do whatever you're going to do. We got to talk about this first. And of course, Dan is aware of all these things, but Dan said, I sensed in my spirit that this person really did have something to say to us. I remember in this church uh, years ago, a young man who worked over in Glasgow in an auto repair shop. And he came to church that morning. I asked him to come up to the platform and have the final prayer. Sometimes the Holy Spirit wants us, here it is again, can we practice the love and kindness of Christ, the redemptive love and kindness of Christ, wherever we can. You say, well, well, you know, I don't like this wildfire. Believe me, I'm the biggest wet blanket there is that can put out any wildfire quicker than anything. But it could be that the Holy Spirit is fanning ever so gently, kindling, as T. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, kindling a love for Christ in our hearts. And we might say, oh, no, no, you know, that's not for us. We don't believe that way, and we've moved beyond that. I heard someone say uh, one time, you know, no, no, I've, I've matured enough. I don't need that foolishness. The old preacher, 
George Glass. He told a story Sunday night in a Pentecostal church, people praying around the altar. There were people lingering in the back, and he went back. And he said, one of the parishioners said to him, Brother Glass, you know, I don't need to do all that anymore. And I remember this as the young preacher, George Glass, said to that person, don't take one more step away from God. I, I know the excesses, and I know all the bad teaching, and I know all the craziness. But there is something in me when the Holy Spirit takes control, he heals and makes things right and lights the path and provides the way that no amount of preaching and teaching can. John Calvin was known as the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Why was he known as the theologian of the Holy Spirit? Because when it's all said and done, everything that I can say, everything that I can do in an instant of ministry through the Holy Spirit, a person's life can be transformed and changed. The insoluble problem all of a sudden doesn't matter. It's set aside. As important as I think it is, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. As much as I, you know that I think that teaching and preaching and the understanding of the word of God is so important, but oh, for that felt presence of God. Help us, Father. You promised the Holy Spirit. You said that you would be with us even to the end of the age. We have the Holy Spirit. We have been given the Spirit of Christ. May we never take that fact for granted. We cherish your presence. Give us hunger. Give us thirst. For righteousness, help us to pursue you, we pray in Jesus' name.